0: In his gospel, John the disciple introduces several themes that run the entire length of the story. There's a wedding theme, a water theme, a light and dark motif. But you may not have noticed how John also weaved a temple theme into the good news. He did this because, behold, the tabernacle of God was among men. Welcome to episode 22, The Tabernacle of God. Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast, where we like to rethink things that we thought we already knew about the Bible. This is Greg Hall, and I'm sitting upstairs in my podcast studio. I've got my purple lava lamp right in front of me. I've got a little tea and my favorite John Deere mug, and... It's about 4.30 at the time of recording, and because of Daylight Savings Time, we're almost completely in the dark. So that's not intended to be a metaphor for the rest of the podcast, uh, just trying to make some conversation here at the beginning. Well, last week, we launched the All America Listener Challenge, and we are attempting to get listeners in each of the 50 United States. And this last week, we added a few new cities and one new state to the list. So welcome to our new listeners in Lawrence, Kansas, Boston and Milton, Massachusetts, Baker City and Silverton, Oregon, Corpus Christi, Texas, and Clarksville, Tennessee. And we added Georgia to the list of states with a listener in Atlanta. That's 23 of the 50 states covered since we started this podcast. And I'm excited for the growth, and I really appreciate all the referrals you're making to encourage new listeners. And while 23 of the 50 states is great, we still have a lot of states left, including all of the A states. That's Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, and Arkansas. And we'd love to get some of those covered over this next week. For those of you following along, there's an updated list of cities and states where people are listening and a cool interactive map at RethinkingScripture.com. And by interactive map, I mean you can go to the website and you can look at it. (laughs) So that's interactive, I guess. And actually, uh, there's more than that. I've built in a little surprise if you click on the map. So I guess I placed a little Easter egg in there right before Thanksgiving. Well, on to this week's episode. This week, we are in John chapter 17, And it's a chapter that's usually referred to as the High Priestly Prayer. And we're going to split this episode into two big segments. The first segment, we're going to be talking about the temple. We're going to be in and through the Old Testament history of the building and the structure that was the tabernacle, later became the temple. And in the second half of the episode, we're going to dive into John's Gospel and specifically here, spend some time in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. And we'll be going through uh, a neat progression that John has included to disclose how Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple structure that we were introduced to in Old Testament times. So I'll just start by asking you a question. If you had asked someone back in Israel, way back in Old Testament times or in Jesus' day, how do you approach God? They would have had maybe several different types of answers, but more than likely, they would have sent you to Jerusalem. And that's because in Jerusalem, after the time of Solomon, there was a building, and it was known as the House of God. And they would say, go up to Jerusalem, go up to the temple, and once you're there, they'll tell you how to approach God to get your answers. That's where the answers to all of life's difficult problems can be found. So here in the first half of the episode, I'd like to just take you to Jerusalem and walk you through that process a little bit. What it was like back then to approach God in Jerusalem. And then, like I said before, I'll show you how it is that Jesus changed all of that. And that'll be our tie back into the book of John. So that's the plan for the rest of the episode. So in our mind's eye now, it's off to Jerusalem we go. And in Jerusalem, on a hill, we find a building— It's called the temple. And it's a bigger version of what was called the tabernacle that Moses constructed. And even though the temple was bigger, the two, the tabernacle and the temple, all had the same basic features. And I realize for some of you, this is going to be a review. Some of you, if I asked you just point blank, can you tell me about the temple or the tabernacle from the Old Testament? You've maybe had a class on it at your church. Maybe you went to a weekend retreat where it was featured and spent time in and through. But what I find more often than not is that there's a lot of people out there that don't understand the ministry of the temple. And so we're going to just walk through the physical structure of the temple and talk about what each part of that physical structure had as its ministry. And if you just want to do some reading on this, you'd be spending some time in Exodus 25 through 30. And it's there where Moses received the instructions on Mount Sinai for how to build the tabernacle. God told him to be sure to build it exactly the way he was instructing because it mirrored something in the heavenly realm. And so Moses built it and used it the way God told him to. And there was furniture in the tabernacle. And many of you know that. Like I said before, some of you could probably name each piece of furniture that was included. You could even maybe draw a diagram of where each piece fits within the structure of the whole. But like I said, for maybe most of us, I suspect that you would only be able to name one piece of furniture. Because there was that movie in the 1980s, you know the one, that tried to explain the mysteries of the spiritual realm, it was Ghostbusters. No, (laughs) that's right. It was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And everyone knows about the Ark of the Covenant and how it melts the flesh in a nice 1980s special effects kind of way off the people who look at it. If you haven't seen that movie in a while, it is worth going back just to appreciate the 1980s way of doing special effects. Well, assuming that that may be the extent of knowledge that you have about the tabernacle furniture, let's talk about it a little more. The tabernacle functioned around six pieces of furniture, and during this episode, what I'd like to do is describe not just the physical pieces of furniture, but I'd like to talk about the ministry of the furniture. It's common for people to talk about the physical structure of the furniture, but that's not really as important as... That's what happened around that piece of furniture. And I usually give this example when I'm talking about this. I usually talk about our dining room table. If you would come to our house, and we've had lots of people through our house in the last 12, 13 years, I could take you to our dining room, and I could show you the table that we have there. And we could spend a lot of time learning about how that particular table was constructed. But that's not really the important part of that structure to me. I'd rather talk about what happens around that table. Let's talk about the meals that have been shared there or the games that we play there or the deep conversations that we've had around putting a puzzle together on that table. Our dining room table has had a ministry in our family's history. And in the same way, the furniture in the temple is really more about what happens around it and what it symbolizes relationally. So the question we should be asking is, how is it that each piece of furniture aided someone's access to God. So the tabernacle and temple had a certain structure to it, how it was organized. And the tabernacle was a mobile structure. It would always be set up the same way. And later, in temple days, it was a more permanent structure, and it reflected the same general pattern. For those of you not at all familiar with this, it's worth a Google search. I'll also put some links in the show notes to some pictures of tabernacle and temple that I use when I teach. So that might be helpful for some of you. As you entered into the courtyard, the first piece of furniture that you would come to is the brazen altar. And this is where the sacrifices are brought. And some people think that this is a picture maybe of us bringing something of value to gain entrance or gain access to God. That's not it at all. This is a picture that suggests that there is something wrong. There's a death sentence. But it's a reminder that in place of my death in that sentence, God has made a provision for a substitutionary death in my place. So when I bring a sacrificial animal to the brazen altar, that's the ministry that's happening around that piece of furniture. After a sacrifice is offered at the brazen altar, the priest would continue on in the progression of furniture. The next piece of furniture that he would come to before entering into either the temple or the tabernacle would be the brazen laver. And there's a certain way that I always describe this. I call it a big bird bath. We don't know the exact dimensions. This is actually one of the pieces of furniture that is not specifically given dimensions. So any pictures or drawings that you see of this structure are an attempt to understand what it may have looked like. The priests, after the messy job of slaughtering the animals at the previous piece of furniture, they would wash in this water before entering the tabernacle. It was filled with living water specifically. That was the instructions given. And living water is water that's not stagnant, it's moving water. So you could get it out of a spring, out of a river, things like that. Anything in a well would not be considered living water. And it's at the brazen laver that we learn about God's provision of cleansing. And it's a ministry that happens there symbolically in the Old Testament. Those are the two pieces of furniture outside the structure. After the laver... The priest would enter into the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure in the Old Testament, and then later in Solomon's time, it became a permanent building on a fixed foundation, and you would be entering into that structure, and in that structure, you have two rooms. The first room is twice as big as the second room, and it is called the Holy Place, and in the Holy Place, there are three pieces of furniture, three ministries, That God has with his people the first would be on the right hand side just as you enter and it's called the table of showbread this is a small table that has 12 loaves of bread 12 loaves one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel it's a reminder to the Israelites of the bread that God supplied from heaven it's the manna it's a reminder of God's provision of nourishment Across from the table of showbread, on the left-hand side as you enter, is the golden lampstand. In the tabernacle, as in the temple, there were no windows. So the only light in the structure itself came from this one lampstand. Later in the temple, there were many lampstands. It was a much bigger room. Everything just exploded into bigger numbers. But here in the tabernacle, the small tent-like structure, the only light within came from this one lampstand lampstand. It had seven branches, and it was a reminder of God's provision of guiding light in a dark world. Beyond the table of showbread and the golden lampstand was the altar of incense. This altar was right before the veil where you could pass through into the second room or the second area in the tabernacle. The priests at this altar would keep incense continually burning. And they would also pray here. In fact, the high priest wore a breastplate with 12 gems that were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. He would offer incense before God, and that was an emblem of his prayers. In other words, the incense smoke was a symbol, and like the prayers, it would drift into the whole structure and even into the Holy of Holies, which is the next room, which symbolized the presence of God himself. So as the high priest is standing there before this altar of incense, he is saying prayers not just for the 12 tribes, but literally for the whole world, all of God's creation is what he's there representing before God, praying on their behalf. After the altar of incense, one would pass through the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies. And I say one would enter because I really mean one would enter. The only person going into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. And it was only one day a year. It was the day of atonement, one of the festivals of God, as outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. And he would enter with the blood of a sacrifice And he would interact with a piece of furniture in that space. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant is. You can read about it in Exodus 25, 17 through 20. It was a box that contained symbols of God's provision. And it represented the very presence of God. Because on top of the box was what's called the mercy seat. It's where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled once a year on behalf of the nation of Israel. I'm just going to take a second and read a little bit uh, out of Exodus 25 because there's some symbolism here that I want you to get in your head before we move on to the second half of the episode. Exodus 25:17, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, a lid on the box, in other words. It'll be two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, angelic beans fashioned out of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. It's that picture that's going to be important as we move through John's gospel in the second half of our episode. This picture of the Ark of the Covenant with two cherubim, two heavenly creatures. We're not exactly sure what they look like, but they have wings. They're facing one another, one at each end of the box, and they're looking down at the top of the lid. And why are they looking down there? It's a good question. They're looking down because that's where the blood of the sacrifice is spilled. That's where the problem of sin is dealt with God style, right there. And the angels are looking at it in wonder because they don't understand. In their realm, the angels don't have the same setup. And so in our realm, they visit and they're looking at this place where God deals with the sin of humanity, and they're just in wonder of it. I'm going to read a little bit from a book by Warren Gage. It was published in 2013. The title is, There is No Greater Love, with a subtitle of How Jesus is Greater Than All Who Came Before Him. I'll talk about Dr. Gage just a little bit more in the second half of the episode, but here, here's a good paragraph here about the Ark of the Covenant that I wanted to read. He says this, The Holy Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred piece of furniture in the Temple of Israel. It represented nothing less than the throne of the living God. God spoke in an audible voice to man between the cherubim of glory, just as he had spoken to Adam in the garden. The cherubim looked down in wonder at the mercy seat where the high priest sprinkled the blood that propitiated the wrath of God against the sin of his people. So in answer to the question, how does someone approach God? An Israelite would have answered that question by going to Jerusalem and pointing out the ministry around each of these pieces of furniture. You first have to go to the altar. You can't skip these first two pieces of furniture in the courtyard and just go into the holy place. You've got to deal with God the way he has outlined. And you approach him by bringing a sacrifice to an altar, by being cleansed by passing by reminders of light and nourishment, by prayers offered before him, and by the mercy of God among men. That's the understanding coming out of the Old Testament. And in the book of John, John takes some of the things that Jesus said, and he organizes them so that they relate to the furniture in the temple. John is inviting his readers to who fully understand the temple better than we ever will, to understand Jesus as the fulfillment of each piece of furniture. But not the furniture itself. Remember, it's what happens around the furniture, the ministry of the furniture. That's what Jesus is fulfilling. Just want to remind you of Hebrews 8, verses 4 and 5. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, that's the Old Testament way, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And I would just suggest to you that John is taking that truth, that there is something to the pattern of approaching God that he outlines in the Old Testament, that Jesus not only brought to light, but brought to fulfillment in his ministry in the gospels so i quoted a little bit about the ark of the covenant from warren gage's book there is no greater love dr gage was my advisor for most of my doctoral studies I got to travel to Greece and Turkey with him in 2015. He has influenced me greatly in how I approach the Bible as not only God's holy word, but also as an incredible piece of literature. And most of what I will share with you in this last section of the episode comes directly from him. Well, to be sure, before I met Dr. Gage, I taught several times how Jesus's ministry fulfilled different parts of the temple ministry. I was familiar with that concept, but I'll never forget what Warren showed me one afternoon in a class in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My buddy, Dr. Chip Bennett was sitting right next to me in that class. And when Dr. Gage started sharing the information that I'm about to share with you, Chip looked at me and said, just hold on to your seat. This is amazing. <laughs> so I guess I'll just give that same sentiment to you right now. What I'm about to share is one of the coolest things I learned in my studies, because it not only ties all the information about the tabernacle and the temple from the Old Testament that we've already discussed, but it shows how the author of this gospel strategically organized his gospel literarily to reflect that history and Jesus' fulfillment of it. So let's just get started, and I'll walk you through John's gospel from a temple perspective. And I'll be quoting quite a bit from Gage's book along the way. Some of these things will be very familiar to you, but again, the way they fit together organizationally, like a puzzle, may be the new factor that you haven't considered. In John chapter one, John presents Jesus and he calls him the Word, which is the Greek word logos, and it has a whole history of philosophic meaning in the Greek speaking world. But in chapter one, verse 14, John said, and the Word. That Lagos character became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that phrase that he uses there, dwelt among us, literally, in the Greek, it's he tabernacled among us. John, the author, is inviting his readers early in the process to see Jesus as a fulfillment of that tabernacle structure in the Old Testament. It's a mobile version of the temple. It's one that moved around, where the 12 tribes followed the structure around, camped around it, learned from it. And that's going to be Jesus's ministry, a mobile structure encompassing the presence of God. And it's further down into chapter one that we get even more imagery building on this idea of tabernacle and Jesus fulfilling that idea. When John the Baptist comes up in verse 29, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, down in verse 36, he mentions, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. That's the sacrificial animal to bring to the temple for the remission of sins. That's what those familiar with the temple ministry would have understood by John phrasing his introduction of Jesus that way. I'll just read a little from Gage's book. He says this, Aaron offered a lamb that took away the sin of Israel for a season, but Jesus offered himself as the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world forever. How much greater is god's lamb than all the offerings lifted up on the altars of israel jesus was god's lamb but god gave him up for us as the lamb of god he gave us his all the lord has laid our iniquities upon him and by his sacrifice we have been made worthy he has done what israel's altars could not do the thing i like about Dr. Gage is he thinks very poetically. He is able to state truth, theological truth, in very poetic terms. It's a good word picture when he's done. And in chapter two, where does John take Jesus? He takes him to the temple. And what does he do there? He gives the old temple notice because it's got a functionality problem and its end is near. It's Jesus saying there's a new temple in town. And he does that effectively in verses 19 through 22 when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. As a point of interest, I believe I mentioned it when we were back in chapter 2 in that episode, the Cleansing of the Temple episode is one of the rare items that makes it into all four Gospels. There's not too many stories that actually get into all four. It's in Matthew 21, 12, Mark 11:15, 15, and Luke 19, 45. But they all put it at the end of Jesus's ministry, right at the beginning of the Passover week of his death. And very interestingly, John takes that account and strategically places it at the beginning of his Gospel here in chapter 2. And some have felt that they needed to conclude that there were actually two temple cleansings. That is a very common understanding of this, but it's not necessary to come to that conclusion when you understand the freedom that the gospel writers had to reorganize events for their own thematic purposes. And that might be a new thought for you. I would just challenge you, though, we see that in the Gospels all the time with Jesus' teaching. We've got some authors taking a sermon that Jesus gave and splitting it up and placing it in completely separate places. and Another author taking the whole sermon, putting it there, along with maybe a couple other sermons, reminding people of certain things at different times. So we understand that that's possible with Jesus' teaching, but it's also with certain events. And in this case, John moves that event to the beginning of his gospel to highlight his unique literary theme. It's the theme of Jesus, the New Covenant Tabernacle, fulfilling the shadow ministry of the Old Covenant Temple. I'll just read a bit from Gage to help explain and give context for what I just put out on the table there. This is from his book, No Greater Love. The gospels tell us that Jesus visited the house of God in wrath, overturning the benches of the merchants who were selling doves. The doves that Jesus released from the temple represented the Spirit of God mounting up on wings to abandon the temple of Herod. Once again, the temple was left desolate, and a future calamity akin to the judgment of the first temple was announced. And he references Matthew 23, verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Gage continues, Furthermore, He has made us into a living temple, 1 Peter 2, 5, by fitting us together into a holy temple, Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Truly, as Jesus said of himself, in him a greater than the temple has arrived, Matthew 12, 6. So just there in the first two chapters of John's gospel, we've got a whole lot packed into it and we are ready. We know that the new temple has arrived. We know that the sacrifice for that new temple has also arrived. And we also know that it's not to the old temple that that sacrifice will be taken. That sacrifice will be taken to a new temple, a literary temple. And this is the road that John has taken us down. In chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up. This refers back to a story in Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. It's the language of the brazen altar, the first piece of furniture that the sacrifice would be brought to. It's the language of the wave offering that sometimes is also called the heave offering because you're heaving it up above your head and then waving it before placing it on the altar. And Jesus, in his interaction with Nicodemus, uses this phrase in verse 14 through 16. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Gage makes this comment in his book. These verses cited from John chapter 3 constitute the brazen altar of the Gospel of John for they foretell the sacrifice of the Son of God for the sins of the world. Surely more sin has been remitted at this sacred place in John's gospel than was ever remitted upon all the ancient altars of Israel. No one who comes to this altar is turned away. All are invited to share in its promise of full forgiveness. And as we slowly make our way through John's gospel, I think you can see what's happening. John is using Jesus's ministry, and he's connecting things that Jesus did in a literarily systematic way to the temple ministry. And we've taken Jesus the tabernacle, and we've brought him to a new temple, one that's functioning properly. And he is the sacrifice upon the altar in chapter 3. And then we move to chapter 4. And you would expect, if this is actually something that John is doing, you would expect there to be something in chapter 4 that has to do with the next piece of furniture, which is a giant birdbath. And it's so interesting that Jesus comes to a source of water in chapter 4 and has a discussion with a woman that's in desperate need of cleansing, and she knows it. Jesus speaks to the woman and offers her living water. He describes it as a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is the language of cleansing. Later in John 7, 38 and 39, we're told that this water that Jesus is speaking about to this woman, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a cleansing ministry. Gage puts it this way in his book. John continues his walk through the temple in order to show us how Christ fulfills what the tabernacle and the temple represented. He brings us to the well of Jacob. Jacob's well is a symbolic image of the laver of cleansing. The priests washed their hands and feet in the waters of the laver before they ministered in the sanctuary. At Jacob's well, though, Jesus promises us something better. The cleansing he promises is internal to the believer. It's cleansing water springing up like living water within him and offers a perpetual cleansing. John records that Jesus offered himself as a living labor of cleansing to a woman. His was not a priesthood open only to the sons of Israel. Instead, his priesthood welcomed women and even Samaritans. It's a great reminder that Gage gives us there that not only is Jesus fulfilling the ministry of these pieces of furniture, but by fulfillment, what we mean is it's a better ministry. It's a more encompassing ministry. It's a functional ministry. The old temple was not functioning, and there's something new that Jesus is offering. And John is piecing together the presentation in a logical format for his audience. It's just beautiful. So after the brazen laver, we're ready to enter into the structure. And if you remember, the structure has two rooms. The first room has three pieces of furniture. And the first piece of furniture that I talked about was on the right-hand side. It's the table of showbread. So if John is really doing this thing, walking us through his gospel and the temple at the same time, what we would expect to see is some sort of a story having to do with bread and nourishment. Does that sound familiar at all? Anybody? (laughs) Well, if you're thumbing forward in your Gospel of John, you would already know that chapter 6 is coming, and that's where Jesus feeds Israel in the wilderness. That's a repeat of an Old Testament story. And would you be surprised that there are 12 baskets of bread left over that they bring to Jesus? Jesus later equates himself with the service of that bread. John 6.35 says this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that they may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He rounds out his teaching in verse 58 of that chapter. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Gage presents it this way. There is an iconic character in John's portrait of Jesus fulfilling what the temple of Israel represented. This visual image is dramatically portrayed in the 12 baskets of barley bread gathered up by the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. The table of showbread displayed 12 loaves of bread set forth in the presence of the Lord, Exodus 25.30. The disciples returned to the presence of Jesus with 12 baskets of bread that they had collected from the great crowd. What a cluster of miracles are depicted here. The bread of the presence represented the provision of the Lord for his people. During the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us that Jesus multiplied sufficient bread to satisfy the individual appetites of the great crowds. After gathering the leftover fragments, just enough was collected to fully satisfy Jesus's 12 disciples. There was no waste. The feeding of the 5,000 was precisely like the giving of manna in the wilderness. There had been precisely enough manna to satisfy everyone's hunger, but no more. And furthermore, the bread of the presence had been celebrated in the presence of the Lord God, who tabernacled among his people in the wilderness. During the feeding of the 5,000, Israel sat at the table in the presence of the Lord Jesus. It's a great picture of the ministry of Jesus. And if you remember, we're inside that first room in the tabernacle, and we've been nourished, but without that lampstand, without the light that the lampstand offered, we couldn't negotiate our way into the presence of God. And so you would expect John, in his gospel, if this was really a thing, following the feeding of the 5,000, you would expect maybe in the next chapter or two that he would have something about light representing maybe the fulfillment of the golden lampstand. Well, if you've been paying attention at all, thumbing through your New Testament as we go, chapter 6 gives way to chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 and 9, we've got a motif presented where Jesus presents himself as the light of the world. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, I am the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 5. He gives light in the temple to the man who has no sight. I love how Dr. Gage describes this in his book. The blind man is made to see ever more clearly that Jesus is Lord. At the same time, the Pharisees are made ever more blind to the one who is the light. 924. During the debate over the man born blind seven times. Now get this. In the dialogue of the story. Seven times we are told that his eyes were opened, that the blind man's eyes were opened. Go back and read it. It's in John 9:10, 14, 17, 21, 26, 30, and 32. Throughout the story of this man gaining sight, seven times we are reminded that his eyes were opened. Back to Gage. Like the seven branches of the lampstand, Jesus gives light. But Jesus is able to open the eyes of the blind so that those who do not see can see. It is a greater work than the lampstand in the temple. The next piece of furniture is the altar of incense. And we take a little bit of break in John's gospel. If you remember, we've spent quite a bit of time in the upper room discourse. So in your mind's eye, we've had the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, and we're now approaching the altar of incense, that place where the high priest would come once a year and pray on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of their sins. And it's this piece of furniture that actually brings us into our chapter for this week. It's this chapter that is often called the High Priestly Prayer. Nowhere in this chapter does anybody say that, but it is an idea that is brought in, I believe, from the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is presented as our high priest, and I believe it's because of his prayer and the nature of his prayer that this has become known as the high priestly prayer. And so here in chapter 17, Jesus takes some time to pray, not just for his 12 disciples, but he also takes time to pray on behalf of everyone that would come to faith through their word. Got a couple paragraphs here from Gage's book that I think shed good light on this scripture. He says this as John continues to show how the ministry of Jesus fulfilled what the altar of incense had represented. He tells us that Jesus offered prayer to father God on behalf of his 12 disciples who represented the new Israel. The hope of Israel was that the Messiah would fulfill the ministry foreseen by the prophet Isaiah, namely that the temple should be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus as a high priest prayed for Israel. But he also prayed for all those who would believe in him through the gospel message of the 12 apostles. And in doing this, Jesus was praying for all the nations. The service that Aaron performed for Israel in the Old Testament was a great service. But Gage says the ministry of Jesus is greater, embracing not only Israel, but the whole world. I've got a list of several verses or s- sections of scripture from the book of Hebrews that you could go to. I'll just quickly mention them and read the last one. You could go to 2.17, 3.1, 4, 14 through 15, 6.20, 4, 9, 9.6 through 10.22, 13, 11 through 14, and then here I've kind of backloaded one, chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. It suggested that in his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. While maybe not exclusively speaking of John 17, this certainly includes the event that we read about in John 17. The picture of Jesus fulfilling that role of the high priest. And it's not a a non-functional high priest. It's not an evil high priest like we saw sometimes in the Old Testament. It's a good high priest. It's a good shepherd looking over his flock. And he's coming to the altar and he's offering his prayers up to the Father. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus fulfilling the ministry of the tabernacle. And so if you're following along, there's one piece of furniture left, right? It's the big one. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And you might be thinking, where in the world is the Ark of the Covenant in the last section of John? We only have a few chapters left. And I know that's what you're thinking, because that's exactly what I was thinking in Dr. Gage's class that day in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with Chip Bennett just sticking his finger in my side saying, isn't this great? And I was like blown away. And I'll just say it in Dr. Gage's words. John continues his demonstration of the Lord Jesus as the fulfillment of the temple with perhaps the most beautiful, iconic vision in all of Scripture. He shows us this vision through the weeping eyes of Mary Magdalene, who stoops in a posture of humility to peer into the empty tomb of Jesus on resurrection morning. Mary sees the place where the body of Jesus had lain and his grave closed sprinkled with blood remaining in that place. She also sees two angels sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet of the place where Jesus had been. The angels marvel at the place and invite her to gaze in wonder with them at the place where Jesus had lain. Gage continues, if we take a moment to reflect on what Mary saw, or better yet, if we, like her, Stoop to examine the sacred scene through her eyes of humility and love, we too will see wonders. The picture of two angels sitting at either end of a slab with blood-sprinkled clothes before them is a direct reference to the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus has made the tomb to be his Holy of Holies, where he was enthroned between the angels, reigning over death itself. He has taken a place that was the most ceremonially unclean, a place defiled by death, and restored the garden of God's presence to us there. As he spoke Mary's name to her, she recognized him standing in the posture of life before her. So God spoke to mankind once again in the garden. But Jesus has done yet greater things than this. All of the holy priests of Israel had seen the shadow of God's throne through its type in the Ark of the Covenant. But the shadow was past, and the reality of God's throne came to pass. It was not the high priest of Israel who saw the true Ark. It was Mary Magdalene, a woman. A woman who had been defiled by seven demons had now been made clean. Mary demonstrated the universality of the priesthood in the time of the Messiah's glory. John has walked us through Jesus's ministry, telling stories of how he interacted with people and how they came into the presence of God. And he did it in such a way to answer the question, what now? Jesus had predicted the end of Herod's temple. And the question on everybody's mind, especially the true believers of God, would be, where do we go now? How is it that we approach God without a temple. And John has written his gospel to answer that question. The believers in the late first century were in disarray. Their world was in chaos. Everything they had known had been demolished when the temple went down. And John is constructing a temple through the ministry of Jesus in which they can reside. And it's a temple better than any temple that stood in Jerusalem or in the wilderness. At the feet of moses because jesus is one better than moses he is a high priest better than aaron and jesus is one better than the temple he said it himself So it's not so much about where you go to get all the answers to life's difficult situations, but how do you go? How do you approach God? And it is a God who has revealed to us how to approach him. Our access is through the ministry of Jesus. So I encourage you to take your questions and your problems to him. Maybe you've not tried to approach him for maybe even a long time. God's there. He's waiting He has the answers. So if you're spiritually hungry and nothing else you've tried has really satisfied your pangs, let me just say Jesus is what you need. When your marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be, when you've got too much month at the end of your money, when you're at the end of your rope with that certain family member, or maybe it's just that you don't know what's next in life. Jesus is the one that gives light to the dark areas in your life. And he will show you where your next steps are. And maybe more importantly, and please understand, it's not just you. Everyone in the world has these same problems. Everyone is spiritually hungry. Nobody can figure out where they are. And when it is that you find that answer, your mission is to take that to a world that desperately needs the answers to life's problems. Well, that's all I've got for today. Today's episode is a conglomeration of a couple videos that I've got on the website. One is a sermon that is called Approaching God Through Sacred Space. And the other was the teaching in the John study for chapter 17. I've added a lot more of Dr. Gage's material direct from the book into this episode. But if you're looking for more teaching on this, you can find both of those videos on the website, RethinkingScripture.com. In the next episode, we'll move the story along into the Garden of Gethsemane and examine what happened at the beginning of the world's hour. Again, thanks for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to all your friends that live in states beginning with the letter A, the Rethinking Scripture podcast.